So we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Thank you, my brother. Appreciate that. Kelly Hudak in the front will hold that one. If you have your Bibles, I was informed today is International Bible Day, right? But that means every Sunday is International Bible Day, bringing your Bibles to church. If you don't have a Bible, we wanna gift you a Bible. There's a Bible in the seat in front of you. Grab it and turn towards the back. You're looking for the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12 is where we will be this week, and I'll tell you how we landed there. We're in the book of 1 Timothy, primarily on Sundays. We study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book as God leads through the scriptures. We are studying in 1 Timothy, a letter written by Paul to his protege, a pastor, a young pastor named Timothy. We've covered up to chapter three, and in the midst of chapter three, we discovered the qualifications for the church's leaders. And those that desire leadership should do so based on service, not status. And that is paradoxical. Service, not status. We discovered what it takes to be an elder, one who is called to oversee a body. And then a deacon. Both men and women can serve as deacons. That word defined is one who serves. One who, and here's the imagery, and it's appropriate, one who waits a table. They are at your service. As I was pondering, of course, that message, the Lord laid on my heart an offshoot, right? So we went into the book of Romans because I felt like I needed to tease out what it means to be a servant and how we serve the body of Christ. And of course, if I'm serving the body of Christ, it is God who grants me the grace or the gift that benefits or edifies the body and gives God glory. So that's what created part one, service over status last Sunday. If you didn't watch it, go back, of course, after today. And today we're looking at part two. We're gonna pick up where we left off. Romans 12, one through five, part one. Romans 12, verses six to eight, part two. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, bless the administration of your word. Grant us ears to hear what it is your spirit wants to say to your church. In your name I pray, amen. The church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, the assembly of God's people. The church is not a building. Many have thought that. Tradition might cause us to believe that. When we gather on a Sunday, we are at church. No. The church are the people regardless of the day. We have the honor of gathering on a Sunday as the church to worship God corporately and to learn of his word corporately. The church then is not a social club. It's also not a welfare organization. It's not social services. The church is also not a religious institution. It's not one religious institution amongst other religions. No, the church is a spiritual body. The church is an organism, not an organization. Yes, there are forms and functions in the church that require organization. However, the church is made up of her people, 
a living, breathing organism of living and breathing people whose lives are supposed to be, ready for this? Living sacrifices. Romans 12, 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. That's chapters 1 to 11 in Romans. The mercies of God, yes, that you would present your bodies, it's physical, a living sacrifice, holy, because God makes it holy based on the life of Jesus and the dying sacrifice that he became, acceptable, God receives it, which is your, ready? Who knows Bible? Your reasonable service, right? So you don't get to service without first going through sacrifice, but it's living sacrifices unto the Lord. The world would have you sacrifice your life unto the way of the world, Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? That puts it to us straight. What is verse two? Well, you wanna stay on the altar of submission, a posture of surrender where you're saying, God, you have purchased me with your blood. And because you own me, you now can choose how you spend me. What would it look like in a community where people would say that type of prayer? Lord, you own me, all of me, and everything attached to me. Now I'm giving you permission to spend me as you see fit. What would that look like? Well, I guarantee that verse two of Romans 12 would be applied, that we would be a people not conformed to the ways of the world but we would be transformed by the renewing, the renovation of our broken minds. How does that happen? I place my mind in the word of God and the word of God, like the potter's hands around the clay, begins to form and fashion me unto the likeness of Jesus. Are you becoming more like Jesus day by day? I mean, that's the ultimate destiny of every Christian, not to be happy, not to be healthy, not to be wealthy, but to be holy in the likeness or conformity of the son. Verse three, Romans 12 says, hey, be mindful how you think. Why? Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Think soberly. Think according to the grace and faith God has given you. Remember, thinking highly, I ask the question, how are you serving me? Thinking more highly of myself, how are you serving me? Thinking lowly, humbly, how can I serve you? Imagine again a people who had the vigilance to look out and say, how can I serve her? How can I serve him? What am I doing to let God spend me for his glory and his body's edification? Now remember a few things before we jump into the new content. If our service is not worship, then our service will become worthless. If our service is not from a heart of worship, I'm doing it for God's glory. I'm not doing it for anything you can give me, no attention, no applause. If our service does not maintain and sustain the heart of worship, here's what happens. Inevitably, service becomes worthless. In other words, people burn out because they're doing it for the wrong reasons. Now, additionally, worship will keep you serving. Worship will motivate you. It will give you new energy to continue to serve. But serving, sadly, can keep you from worship. We would caution anyone who's serving on a team 
to do so at the expense of your worship. Finding the right rhythms. We believe in, if you serve, sit one, serve one. That sounds nice, but it's true. We want you to sit and worship corporately, sit under the teaching of God's word, and of course, that will give you the right perspective to worshipfully serve, living sacrifices, reasonable service. Right away, verse four, Romans 12, Paul gives an analogy of the body. Here's what he says. For as we have many members in one body, I would say that's unity around the gospel, but all the members do not have the same function. That's diversity around the gifts. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. That's interdependency around church growth. Now here's a question. I'm asking the question of myself and of you, and I'm asking it not to hurt anyone's feelings. In fact, if you know my heart by now, I'm asking it to help your faith. And here's the question. If you were to quit being a part of this church today, would anything be missing except your attendance? Let that sink in. If you were to leave today, this church, what would be missing? Would anybody know you went missing? Would your gift leave a vacancy, a void? People move on for various reasons. Those that move on perhaps because of proximity, God has moved them to a different state they can't attend anymore. And you can know the impact they had in a body when they're no longer here. And what I'm saying is not that anyone is irreplaceable, but our impact on a body should be felt by everybody, yes? So how do we use what God has given to us? Let's get into it. Romans 12, six, A. Having then gifts, the word is charismata, or where we get our English word charisma. It means spiritually graced. It means endowed by God's grace to practice or serve in a given function. Differing according to the grace, it's the word charis, it's related to the word charisma, that is given to us. Let us use them. Let me read it in its entirety. Having then gifts, differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. And here's what I picked up. Based on the previous verses we read, this is awesome. Everything that we have is God-given. Did you catch that? The gifts given by God. The grace is given by God. Did you even catch in verse three, the faith, the measure of faith that you have is given by God. Put that all together. God gives the gifts, God gives the grace, God gives the faith. Therefore, what is it called when one receives a gift or a responsibility, given something that's not theirs, but they are to tend to it? They are to manage it. What's it called? Stewardship, yes. The biblical word stewardship means to house manage, to be a manager of a house. Jesus had much to say about stewardship. Until he returns, he has granted us each measures of faith, grace, and gifts. Question, how are we using them? Matthew chapter 25, pretty long account, it says this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country. This is Jesus. 
who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. Now, now please note, he doesn't lose it. He just doesn't use it. He dug a hole and hid the money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants, key words, Lord, servants, the Lord came and settled accounts with them. So he who received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful. Yes, you were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, same thing. Not, wow, that's not as good as the guy that made five. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. I didn't lose it. Here it is. I polished it. I kept it safe. Listen to the Lord of love, the God of grace, the master of mercy. Listen to what he says. But his Lord answered and said to him, that's okay. But the Lord said to him, better luck next time. But the Lord said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. What type of servants are there? You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given. Translation, he was using what God has given him. God will multiply and give him more, more responsibility, more talents, more gifts, more honor, more glory God's way. Think about this. And he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, does not use what God gave him, even what he has will be taken away. And cast, you ready? The unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's eternal damnation based on what the servant, one, either profitable or two, unprofitable service unto the master. I mean, that's a heavy text. That alone would be enough to say, hey, are you using your talent? Let's pray and let's get to work. But a lot of us don't even know how to discover our gift and use it. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, it says this. You might say, I don't have a gift. The word of God would say otherwise. 
as each one has received a gift, same word, charismata, charisma, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You know why I love this? The word minister here is related to the word deacon. Each one of us have the ability and a gift to serve and we are stewarding the manifold grace of God? Yes, the multifaceted, many-dimensioned, diverse graces of God. Verse 11 in that same chapter says this, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If God has given you a, a gift to speak, you do so as if you're speaking on behalf of God himself. Why do you get so passionate in the pulpit? How can I get passionate when I'm speaking God's holy word? If anyone ministers, serves, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever, amen. Translation, the gift of God comes with the grace of God. All that pressure, I say pressure to perform, should melt away. The gift God gave you comes with the grace that God has for you. And the gift of God is for the glory of God. Just note that. You don't have to write that down. The gift of God comes with the grace of God. And the gift of God, why did he give me a gift? Is unto the glory of God. Now here's the indictment. To neglect the gift that God gave you is to reject the grace that God gives you. To neglect that gift is to reject the grace that God gives. And we become more like the wicked and slothful servant who buried his talent when he should have been a blessing with the talent. The choice is ours, it ultimately is. We bury what God gave us, we don't use it, or we can use it and multiply it. I was thinking of an illustration here, I couldn't find the right one, but one came to the surface upon my research and I was like, wow, that's powerful. And it's powerful because of this. You might look around in a ministry like this and go, I don't even know where to start. Sounds like there's so many things happening here. I'm overwhelmed, I don't even know what to do. Likewise, you can look out in your world and say, there's so much happening in our world, I can't even keep up with it. It's overwhelming, there's so much evil. I don't even know what to do. That's why this illustration was perfect. It involved a real life testimony from an individual named Bon Fox. He was a B-17 Air Force pilot during World War II. During one of the missions over Germany, he took anti-aircraft fire, flak, from the soldiers down on the ground. One of them hit his gas tank. He, of course, realized he couldn't continue the mission, circled back, returned, only to discover that his gas tank, which should have detonated and exploded, did not. After they discovered the point of entry, they found it wasn't just one bullet or one anti-aircraft ammunition, it was 11. 11 shells struck his gas tank. 
So he decided to ask for one of those pieces of ammunition as safekeeping, demonstrative of his good fortune, of course, right? When he went to get it from the armament, they didn't have it. They said, we've passed it on to intelligence. When they opened up to defuse the ammunition, they discovered all of them but one, all but one were completely empty. The one had something in it and it wasn't ammunition. It was a note rolled up, written in check. True story. When they found somebody who could speak in check, they read the note and it said this, this is all we can do for you now. See, somebody in a German ammunition factory did not believe in the Nazi cause. And they looked out and said, this is too overwhelming. I don't even know where to start. I might not be able to do everything, but I'm gonna start right here in this assembly line and I'm gonna do something. And I think that is the point. Nobody here can do everything, but everybody here can do something. Romans, at the end of Romans 12, where we're at, guess what it says? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with? This is the heart of service. Good in the body, good in the world. I loved an email I recently received from a family who attends here when they can from a distance, ultimately encouraging the ministry from afar. They actually had some very interesting things to note. They said that, They've watched several churches online and sadly when they would go to check out what was happening in person, what they saw online was not what they experienced in person and they were happy to report that when they came to visit with us that what they saw online was exactly what they experienced in person and it was a great encouragement and they said we might not be able to be there in person, we're watching from a distance but we wanna get involved and this woman said here's my cell phone and my email and please use me to pray for anything that's happening in your fellowship. And I said, that's awesome. They might not be able to be here physically, but they wanted to be involved spiritually. Verse six and seven, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches, and teaching. Now, what's covered here in these several verses are the seven, some say motivational gifts. There are at least 20 different gifts in the body. There are seven here. I'm only gonna cover the seven here because I believe categorically they either cover the gift to communicate in some form or fashion or the gift to serve in some form or fashion, right? So you're the hands and feet or you're the mouth, peace. As we look at prophecy, God has given the gift of prophecy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse three, it says this, he who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and consolation. Can I define those for you very quickly? The gift of prophecy, which is a communicative gift. God gives that gift to speak on his behalf, but it's done so, ready for it? Edification, that means to build up. Exhortation, that means to fire up. Consolation, that means to hold up. All of those come with the gift of prophecy. You can divide prophecy in two directions. Foretelling, and I've taught on this before, and forthtelling. 
The reason it says prophecy in proportion to our faith, it's not just the faith God gave you. In the original language, in Greek, it says in proportion to the faith. Translation, in accordance with the faith, the body of doctrine. Prophesy according to the boundaries of the Bible, right? Prophecy enforces or reinforces revealed truth. The gift of prophecy is used whether on stage, on a platform, from a pulpit, or in one-on-one settings, prophesying over one's life, using the word of God to either foretell or shoot it straight, forth-tell. Prophets have a certain type of spirit. Some would say they're ornery. That's not what it is. They just have a holy burden to want to communicate what's happening in the world because they can see it through the word of God and they warn people or they warm, W-A-R-M, people. Warning or warming. Prophecy is bound by the standard of scripture. To go beyond the word of God is not to prophesy, but to prophesy. You know any prophesiers? To go beyond the word of God? You prophesying. <laughs> the gift of ministry. Here, here's a cool one, ready? Again, it's related to the word Diakonos, where we get deacon from, it says, ministry, if that's your gift, use it in your ministering, not rocket science. The word ministry is serving in practical ways. There are those who just wanna see a need and meet the need. God has endowed that man or that woman with the ability, ready, that God supplies and energy to wanna serve. The gift of service, you ready, is often those who are behind the scenes. What does that mean? It means they don't care if they're seen. Did you get that? They're behind the scenes because they can care less whether or not they are seen. Now, please note this, not visible does not mean not valuable. Now, here's the gift of service. You don't even notice when those who are demonstrating and practicing the gift of service, you don't notice what they did. We often take what they do for granted, but you will notice if they don't do what they do. You know what I'm talking about? How come nobody turned on the lights this morning? How come nobody cleaned up the sanctuary? How come the bathroom's dirty? How many times do we go in the bathroom and they're clean and we don't even notice it? Are you understanding what I'm saying? We are blessed with a body of people who have been endowed with the gift of service. I I think that's the fiber of the body, the fiber of what happens here, the gift of teaching. Someone can have the gift of prophecy and the gift of teaching, and as we'll eventually see, the gift of exhortation. What God gives each person is his prerogative. The gift of teaching, quite literally, is instructional. So if the gift of prophecy is proclaiming, the gift of teaching is explaining, And again, the gift of teaching does not only get used from a pulpit. You would want your pastor teacher to have the ability to be able to expound upon the scriptures because that's the primary purpose of teaching. It's foundational to expound upon God's truth. Now, some people have a desire to teach. Let me give you a hint. If you spend time in front of groups and you're teaching and all people say, when you get done is, that was really nice. I hate to break it to you, you do not have the gift of teaching. 
I remember being an inmate of the state and as I did Bible studies, the, the COs would come in and go, you're gonna do this for a living one day. I remember like, what? You're out of your mind. And then inmates would affirm the gift. And then of course, along the way, everywhere I went, when I had the honor of speaking God's word and teaching, people would come out. What am I trying to say? God will affirm the gift he gave you through trustworthy and mature people around you. The gift makes room. I'll also say this. A good teacher is also a great student. I, I wrote it on my notes like this. The best teachers of students are themselves teachable students. The best teachers of students are themselves teachable students. Always in session, Pastor Gene. Always wanting to learn more about God's word. Those are the first Three, prophecy, ministry, teaching. Verse eight, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. All right, he who exhorts, this is the gift of, let's say, encouragement, but really specific. The word helps you understand how specific. The word in Greek is parakaleo. The word for the Holy Spirit is a paraclete, one who comes alongside. So think about this. The gift, like the giver of the gift, the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us. When you have the gift of exhortation, you come alongside of people and you help them go from point A to point B. You spend time encouraging them, building them up, but motivating them. You help them get out of their own way. When one has the gift of exhortation, they do so in such a, I hate to use this word because it's spiritual, but it's natural to them. It's the person that goes, I have to text this friend and let him know that I want to encourage him. Like you can do the gift of exhortation one-on-one -on -one, at a coffee house, in a, a group setting, an email sent. It costs you nothing to send a text message to remind a friend, a loved one, that God sees them. Amen? As I told you, I wasn't feeling well, haven't been feeling well. Thursday, I crashed, woke up, had a fever, was dizzy, stayed in bed all day. The door opened, and I knew it was one of my children because it seemed as if a hamster had entered my room, <laughs> right? Because I'm under the covers. I'm like, I don't know which one it is, but it's one of them. And I kid you not, I had my back to the outside of the bed, and I felt a little kiss on my back. And I turn around and it's Willow. And she didn't say anything. She looked at me and I didn't say anything to her. And she said, dear Jesus, thank you for God. Now that's not theological. I got to work on her prayers. It's more appropriate to say, dear God, thank you for Jesus. But I didn't interrupt her. She then said, thank you for daddy and would you make him feel better? And I tell you the encouragement that entered my soul, right? The gift of exhortation. He who gives, it says he who gives with liberality. The word is awesome. It means singleness. Some translations say generosity. And the reason it's singleness is because this person that gives, they do so 
with one aim, to not get any credit and to give God glory. There's a singleness of mind in when they give, but it's also a liberal gift. I probably should rephrase that. <laughs> it's a generous gift. Those that have the gift to give, they give out of either their abundance or their lack. They give because it shows that God has given them much. Now, Jesus had much to say about how we give. Again, think about the weight of what Jesus says here. Matthew 6, verses one to four. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Did you realize they actually did that? When the Pharisees would be going to the temple to give an offering, they would announce their arrival with a trumpet as if all the attention on the streets would be focused on them, that they would demonstrate how holy they were and how much they gave to God. Look at me. Jesus said, don't do that. In fact, assuredly I say to you, that's their reward. That's what you want, go for it. But we'll, look what we're missing out on, you ready? But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Wow. Don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing or giving. The idea, giving generously, with no expectation of return, except for God's pleasure. A cute little parable involving a farmer coming into the king, granting the king his prized carrot from his garden. The farmer presented the carrot. The king was so pleased with the generosity of this measly farmer that he granted him an entire farm in return. There was a nobleman that witnessed this. He reasoned in himself, if the king gave such luxurious land for a measly, meager carrot, what would he give for one of my noble horses? The next day, the nobleman came in and just as he manufactured in his heart, king, one of the greatest horses in the land. The king said, thank you, you are dismissed. The nobleman was confused, probably spoke too much. He said, I'm confused. Yesterday, the farmer gave you a carrot and you gave him an entire farm. I'm giving you one of the greatest horses in the land. And the king said, exactly. The farmer gave me the carrot. You gave yourself the horse. Nobody's impressed with your checkbook in the body of Christ. What God has given all of us, 100% of it, is God's. And how we use what God has given to us demonstrates whether or not we believe that principle. Second Corinthians chapter nine, verses six to eight says it like this, but I say to you, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, not out of guilt, for God loves a cheerful 
giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Charles Spurgeon was invited to speak at a fundraising event to pay off the church debt. A wealthy businessman sent that request. In the request, asking him to come help them pay off their debt, the wealthy businessman said, and you can choose to stay on me, either in my farmhouse, my townhouse, or my lake house, to which Charles Spurgeon wrote back and declined the invitation and said, why don't you sell one of your homes and pay off the debt yourself? He who leads with diligence. This means he who steers the ship. God has given the gift of leadership. And that leader, as they stand at the helm, they steer the ship. It's like the gift of administration. They're able to organize people and delegate responsibilities. Now, let me put some of these gifts together in a very unique way. If you think about the gift of prophecy, that person knows the way. They share the way. If you think about the gift of teaching, that person shows the way. When you think about the gift of leading, that person goes the way. Leaders are examples. They recognize people are following them. Jesus was the greatest leader, and he did so by serving those around him. Final gift, those that show mercy with cheerfulness. Now, please hear me on this. The gift of mercy is a unique endowment. All of us are called to some form or fashion demonstrate at least the basis of these gifts. It might not be the gift God gave you, but all of us should teach our children the way of the Lord, amen? All of us should evangelize and wanna talk about the gospel. All of us should be merciful people, but there are those amongst us who God has given a unique endowment of mercy, and they do so with cheerfulness. The word is hilarity. They don't do so because they're checking a box. Who are these people? They enjoy going to the hospital and sitting by a bedside. They enjoy ministering in jails and ministering to those that are down and out. They sign up for Lost and Found and go to Atlantic City and serve those that are on all types of addictions and are are homeless. They enjoy it. They do so with a smile on their face. You don't have this gift if you hear about people that are down and out and you go, man, they put themselves in that situation. That's the gift of criticism, not the gift of mercy. You have no idea how many ministries we have here of people that have the gift of mercy. Lost and found, the care team that Terrence oversees are people who have the gift of mercy. Our support groups, our recovery groups, all these are made up of men and women who wanna show God's mercy. They're coming alongside people that are down and out and they recognize, listen, I can relate to where you're at. And they just let somebody else know, I don't have all the tools to get you out of this mess, but I'm gonna sit in it with you. My time is short. This list is not exhaustive. The analogy goes like this. If you were in a group setting and somebody was coming to your table, they had either a plate or a glass in their hand and they drop the plate and they drop the glass and it shatters everywhere. What is your initial response? You can know your gift. I love this. The person that has the gift of prophecy will likely say under their breath, I could have predicted that happening. (laughs) And they'll eventually get to a point of saying, hey, next time when you carry it like this, here's the 
end outcome, or they'll at least say, hey, don't worry, God is able to make a beautiful masterpiece out of your mess. They have the gift of prophecy. The person with the gift of service, they don't say a thing. They just get out of their seat, they get on their hands and knees, they pick up the glass and nobody gets cut by it. They ask the waiter for a towel. They begin to serve with no expectation of anything in return. The teacher, they wait. They wait for the opportunity to say, hey, next time you're carrying a plate and a glass, you do so like this. This is the strongest way to carry something like that. The person that has the gift of exhortation, they go alongside the person. They say, listen, don't worry about it. Pick your head up. It's not a big deal. Deal. doesn't cost that much money. Besides, that guy over there has the gift of giving and he's gonna pay for what you broke. Because <laughs> the guy with the gift of giving, it's exactly what he does. He doesn't get on his hand and knees. He says, how much was that? Put it on my tab. The person with mercy, they just sit down. Say, don't worry about it. Right here with you. Are you understanding? Like finding our gift, I know it's a challenge, you may not know your spiritual gift, but here's the, the hope. The gift of the Holy Spirit will help you discover, develop, and deploy your spiritual gift. And all of us who are believers in Christ have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Where do you begin? You begin in the Word of God. You begin reading about the gifts. This is how the Spirit of God begins to draw you unto your gift. You'll find the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, as we just covered them, Ephesians 4. There are a variety of gifts. Another way you discover your gift, you come to church and you get involved. And in the process of getting involved, your gift comes to the surface. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider one another in order to stir each other up unto love and good works. Imagine if we're all focused on each other and not ourselves and we're stimulating and stirring up the gift that God gave you and you might be unaware that is in you. That's what Paul Reminded Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, 6 and 7, I remind you to stir up the gift that God has placed inside of you, the gift of God. Did you know what verse 7 in 1 Timothy chapter 1 is? For God has not given us a spirit of fear. Did you know that? He's given us one of power and love and a sound mind. Final passages and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, listen to the language, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Translation, the goal of all of this is not more spiritual activity. The goal of all of this in that passage is spiritual maturity. Each of us helping each other grow in our faith, using our gifts for edification of the body and unto the glory of God. There needs to be an understanding that we have to have spirit in, in the body and truth in the body. Like sailing involves, the sail requires the wind and the rudder directs the ship some churches are built upon the premise of too much spirit. 
so much spiritual activity and there's a lot of frenzy and they're excited and you're gonna, where are you going? I don't know. We're excited to get there. And there are some churches that major on truth, no spirit. It's very stiff, very judgmental. We need to be a body that understands spirit and truth. And I don't think there's any better segue for us to be self-reflective or to examine ourselves than to engage in communion, to think about what God has done, to ask him to reveal to us the gift he gave us, to be ever thankful for the sacrifice of Jesus. Communion, that is between you and God. If you have not been granted the communion elements, the ushers are making their way around as we speak. I will read to you out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Would you set your hearts in order to partake in the elements for I received from the Lord? This is the apostle Paul, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Wow. Let that sink in. What is known as the last supper. It was communion. It was Passover and Christ was engaging. Yes, sir. The elements with his disciples who he had spent three plus years pouring into. And he knew he was in the shadow of the cross and he knew beyond the cross, they would have to have their orientation around truth, that his body was broken for a reason and his blood was shed for a reason. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Are you hearing the language? Communion is about remembering Jesus. No better place to place your mind than remembering Jesus. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes and he's coming. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That's heavy. That's why I often say, don't take it if you don't know what you're doing. Do not take it in an unworthy manner. Nobody's gonna judge you. Just place it on the seat next to you. But you are to be very contemplative and to think deeply about the love of Christ for you. It says, but let a man examine himself. Let him then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Chastened. I think the passage is clear. The word of God proclaimed the challenge and charge presented doing business with God first and foremost, presenting our bodies a living sacrifice, being engaged and willing to serve not doing so for any attention or applause from man, not caring about status, 
by way of worldly standards, but service unto the body, recognizing he gave me a gift, he grants me his grace, and he gives me the faith to use my gift. I ask you to consider where you stand with the Lord, because I don't want anybody to ever have the testimony. I left the church and nobody missed me. But each of us, a member in the body, would take seriously where we're at as a church and start to do what God has asked us to do. Father, as your people partake in this sacred moment, would they be led by your word and your spirit to think deeply about where they stand with you? And as Paul instructed us, your body broken, reminds us of what you went through and the price you paid to redeem us, the blood that was shed to the purification of the soul, to the forgiveness of sins, to the renewing of the mind, to the transformation of the spirit from death to life, from darkness to light. Use this body for your glory. Use us according to your will. It's in the name of Jesus I pray, amen.